Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. I will begin with a, a very loaded question, and that is, tell me some of the adventures of starting your own private practice. To be honest, it was kind of scary, right? You know, you're going into the unknown. You hear about people doing it, but you're not sure what it's really going to take and, and what is going to happen. And I would say over the years, there's been several things where I sit back in my chair and I think, God, I have seen it all now. And in the end, I really haven't. So initially, my adventure started with joining a practice in Reno, Nevada, where I was with a spine group. And prior to me joining, it was two neurosurgeons who didn't have an interventional pain guy. And I don't know what they thought, but I kind of got the idea that, that they thought pain management was medication management, three epidurals, and, and when patients fail all that, then you pass them on to the surgeons. And so I got about a year into my job, and I remember one of the surgeons pulled me aside, and a question for me was, is what are these radiofrequency ablation things you're doing? I've never heard of these. And, you know, I started looking at a lot of the referrals he was sending over and every patient with axial back pain, he would send them over. And the recommendation was epidural, discogram, and then send back for, you know, a, you know, multi-level fusion. And, you know, some of these patients would be 58 years old. They'd come over, you'd talk to them. And it was obviously mechanical back pain that was facetogenic in nature. You'd lean them back a little bit and, you know, they would say, oh God, that caused my pain. And so I started doing these blocks and ablations, and I think they saw their surgical numbers drop. And with that led to unhappy owners of a clinic where I thought I was providing a great service. And so at that point, you know, I kind of saw the writing on the wall that this relationship isn't going to last very long. I'm not doing what they think I should be doing, but yet I'm doing what's in the best interest of the patient and what I've been taught, what's in my wheelhouse. And so at that point, I decided to go and branch off and start my own clinic. One of the best advice I was ever given by one of my fellowship trainers was that 80% of all pain fellows don't stay in the same job, you know, 80% of the time. Two years later, if you reach out to them and contact them, they end up taking another job and they're not with their first job. And so he always told us to still live like your resident, don't live beyond your means, and whatever you can do, save your money. So if that, if that happens, you have resources or things to do. And I'm sure you've seen this with some colleagues or heard about it, is that they get out, they get the big pain job at first. The first thing they do is they, they go out, they buy a new car, they find a house, and then they you know, get their spouse pregnant or vice versa. It, they, they end up getting pregnant themselves if they're a female physician. And you find a situation where now they're kind of stuck, right? They, they don't have many resources. They're locked financially. And so when I got out of my fellowship, you know, and I came to Reno, Nevada, I have to say I lived in an apartment for probably almost two years. I still drove the same car that I drove during my residency and my fellowship. And actually, I, I didn't buy a new car until after my practice became successful. So I drove that car into the ground. And after the practice was started, you know, we decided to finally have kids because we finally felt like we were on financial stable ground. 
And so starting the practice, it was, it was kind of scary. It was the unknown. You're in a town that you moved to that you got recruited to. You don't know anybody there. You've met patients. You've made some, you know, some new friends, but you're not you know, really stuck there. And now you're moving on from a job and you got to look to try to make your own way. And so luckily I, I had a lot of friends and resources around me that could, could help out. Probably one of the best things I did is as a fellow is I went and did a fellows course where it was the business side of medicine. And they gave us a 30 page document. And in that 30 page document, it was a 12 month guide on how to open your own practice. And I have to say that after I parted ways with the neurosurgeons, I basically took that 30 page 12 month guide and I've worked from six o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night and opened my doors three months later. But, you know, opening your doors isn't, isn't the end of the adventure. Now you're working with getting on insurance panels, seeing patients, and then you got to make sure that you're billing and coding correctly so that those claims get paid in a timely manner. And a lot of times, I don't think physicians realize, but the work they're doing today, unless they're really good billers and coders that can get that turned around in a timely fashion, they may not see payment on that for 90 to 180 days. So they may not see payment for that work six months down the line. And that was probably the biggest scare that I had, you know, was first starting my practice is I took enough money to pay overhead, including paying myself for three months. And three months into that, you know, I'm calling the billing people and saying, hey, where's the money? I don't think I have enough to pay myself, let alone my employees over the next, you know, the next three months. And so it got to be a little scary at that point. Yeah. A lot going on. Dennis, it sounds like obviously you started to do the RFAs with the surgeons that you worked with. And then you said, you know, 80% of people who graduate leave within one or two years. What are your thoughts on why people leave? It's very clear what happened in your situation, but what about the other people out there? Well, I think when you go through the interview process, it's kind of like dating, right? You don't really know people's true intentions or true colors until you really get to know them. And I think people can fake it for a period of time. So when you're when you're a fellow and you go and you interview or you see a practice for 24 to 48 hours, and then you have to make a lifelong decision on if that's your your correct landing spot, you just really can't get a good feel for it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a lot to really understand people's true feelings and truly who they are. And, and it may take sometimes people six months for them to show, you know, who they are for you to understand, you know, what the situation you've got yourself into. Yeah, well said. Are there any recommendations, tips, or pearls for people who are graduating to kind of figure out what someone's true intentions are? I think, you know, one of the best things you could probably do is ask if they've had other people in that position previously. And if they have, I think you have every right to ask who they were and if you can have their contact information. I think that speaks volumes that when an employer can look you in the face and say, hey, this is the person that was here before. Here's their number. From our perspective, this is why it didn't work out. Please feel free to reach them and, and get their perspective. I think that that says a lot, right? It makes it to me that they're not hiding anything. If you ask them for those people and they don't give you the names or the numbers, then I think you should run. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Very clear recommendation. I love yeah. it. And as an employer now, I've, I've kind of seen the flip side of it, right? I've hired a few physicians and had them on board. And to me, you just it seems backwards that people are coming to you. Well, yeah, you want them. I mean, it doesn't seem backwards in the sense that they're coming to you and, and they want to see your culture and how your you and your employees work together and what the feel, the look feel of the practice is. 
But I think as an employer, you want the opposite. You want to see how they are with patients, right? And they're watching how you are with patients. So they're shadowing you, watching you talk to patients, and then they're shadowing and watching you do procedures. As an employer, I think you want to, you wish you could almost fly to their fellowship, spend a day with them, watch how they are with patients, and then watch how their hands are in the procedure room and see how, you know, how good their hands are to see what you're, you're getting into as an employer. I can kind of see both sides of it now that I've gone through the whole process on both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. You understand both sides, like you said. So walk us through, Dennis. This is really good. Let's say three months, your practice gets off the ground. Talk to us a little bit about the pros and cons of running your own private practice. So at the end of the day, you're going to find that running your own show, the buck stops with you. And and that's what I would say is that I think at first, you know, you're so concerned about making ends meet and paying yourself. Like I said, there was a period of time where I started paying myself every other payroll. And then there was another period of time where I stopped paying myself. And that was because I was retro billing all the Medicare patients that I was seeing from my private previous practice that followed me that I continue to see them. And so even though I was seeing patients, I wasn't being paid because Medicare hadn't recognized my new tax ID. And I remember it took about six months. And when that check came, it was like Christmas came early that year. It was about three weeks before Christmas. And at that point, you kind of knew that you'd, you'd made it. But I think the fear of that five months of not being able to, you know, for a period of time, not being able to pay yourself kind of puts that, that drive into you and instills that fear that you just always think that the sky's going to fall. And so I'd have to say it's taken you know me about 10 years to finally kind of relax and realize like, look, you know, your clinic can manage itself without you being there. But over those years, probably the hardest part I had was I was practically the practice manager for a period of time. So not only am I trying to see patients, but I'm trying to manage the day-to-day operations. And so you say you have a front office girl that all of a sudden has a run-in with one of your back office girls, and you've got 40 patients to see that day. And now you have to sit down after finishing that day to talk with the two of them to sort out what you know beef they had at 930 in the morning. As an owner, you just get to a point where you're like, oh, God man, it's seven o'clock at night. I'd love to go home and see my wife and kids. And maybe I need to start looking at having a practice manager because I'm sitting here at seven o'clock at night listening to this petty argument that occurred eight hours ago and trying to sort it out. The other thing that I used to do is call on my own payroll. And I had to do it on by Wednesday at 5 p.m., which was based in Phoenix, ADP. And Reno is an hour behind Phoenix when we fall back in the in the wintertime with daylight savings. Yeah. And then when you spring forward, we're the exact same time as them since Phoenix doesn't recognize daylight savings. So when the, that switch happened, this is about three, four years in, I called at 4.55 in that spring and I didn't realize, well, I'd missed the cutoff basically by, you know, they were an hour ahead. And so that's it. It was in the fall. We had fallen back. We were an hour ahead. I'd missed the cutoff and I called the next morning. They're like, I'm sorry, we we can't process that fast enough. Your cutoff yesterday was at five. Your employees aren't going to get paid Friday morning. So even though I had the money to pay my employees, I now had to make an announcement that I'm sorry, we got really busy yesterday. I didn't call in payroll. And now your direct deposit isn't going to go to your checking account until Monday. Well, you find out a couple of things real quick. You find out how many of your employees are living paycheck to paycheck. 
you find out real fast how quickly you got to get your own checkbook out, bring it from your house and write them checks to cover their bills for that weekend. <laughs> and then, you know, one day, then try to sit down with them and have them write you a check in return to pay you back for covering their bills for the weekend, which, you know, a couple of employees then were like, had excuses on why they couldn't pay you back. And that was such a hassle. And that, I think that was the one point where I realized like, look, the day-to-day management you know, even though I had done it for two to three years, you just can't do it anymore. You need to bring somebody in and, and let them handle the day-to-day stuff. So how did you go about finding a practice manager? Well, at that point, I'd, I'd had several employees that had been with me since the inception of the practice. And the one person who I had, I always thought she was very bright. She was the front office girl and she was very good at multitasking. And talking with her and working with her, I could just, I could just see the wheels turning. I had another employee who had been with me and was very faithful. And she was very faithful to me, but I could just see the other people around her, that she would be the type that would rule the place with fear, if that makes sense, where the other girl would have been one that would problem solve, work with people and be more of a people pleaser. And so at the end, I kind of I groomed the two of them. And then I interviewed both of them. And then I talked to the other employees to get feedback on who they would feel more comfortable working with. And I picked the front office girl that was a good multitasker. And she actually ended up being my practice manager for about six years and did an excellent job. But, at, you know, interesting enough, her husband kind of is about the same age as myself. He ended up starting his own business not too long, about a year or two after I started my business. And he and I are kind of working together, kind of bounced ideas and did different things, even though he wasn't in medicine. His business took off. And when his business took off, she didn't need to work anymore. And <laughs> I was about a practice manager. So my own success and helping her and her husband kind of was my detriment at one point, right? Like, yeah. I'm like here's my punishment helping, for helping others. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah, that's an actually true statement. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought that in my own practice, like, Every time you go out of your way or bend over to do something for somebody, it just seems to come to back back to bite you in the butt. You've got to kind of just chuckle at it. And then as you told us, kind of revealed the cons of everything about the private practice, give us kind of a sneak peek there. What pros, you know, would you like to bring to light for the listeners out there? I think one of the main things that people should take away is as physicians, we kind of like to have control of our own schedule, right? We like to be able to determine how many patients we want to see what type of procedures we want to do. And then, as we all know, medicine is an art. There's no perfect way to do everything. You could skin the cat five different ways. And so it's nice to be able to determine your kind of art to your type of medicine and be able to promote it. And I think that's the great part about running your own practice is that you can order what you want. You can do, you know, treat patients how you want, and you don't have that you know, administrative burden with a academic or a private practice where you're not an owner, somebody telling you what they think you should or should not be doing. So I'd say that's the biggest thing. But at the end of the day, you're the guy. So you got to be prepared to be able to answer all the questions and do all the things if you are the primary owner. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, interesting that you brought that up. I have an interest in burnout as well. And I would say a lot of things that drive burnout is lack of agency, lack of autonomy. So it sounds like in private practice, like you said, you are the guy, you are the girl, and then you have the final decision. And like you said, you get to practice the art of medicine, which I'll be honest, we probably don't get enough of during our medical training, but it sounds like you got a crash course and other people are getting a crash course as well. Correct. Correct. Tell us a little bit about obviously being private practice, the efficiency 
side of things. And so I think this is huge for a lot of people who are coming out and graduating. I mean, you've seen different different ways on how different attendings you've worked with go about doing their day. And so you end up kind of picking, kind of assembling them all together and kind of forming your own way of doing things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best or the most efficient way to do that. And so as I was building my practice, what I ended up doing is I talked to several people in industry and, you know, I'd be like, hey, who's doing this or who's doing that? And Gal, you know, you see how my practice size is, you know, at this point, I've got 15 employees, but I'm looking to expand into this or I'm looking to do that. And I would utilize those relationships to find out which different clinics were about the same size as mine and had, you know, they were known as key opinion leaders or leaders in the industry at that time. And I would usually reach out to them and I would find a way to have a sponsored visit with them. Does that make sense? So I'd go down and you know, I'd either like, I want to learn more about stimulation. So I'm going to go down to this practice. I'm going to learn about stimulation. But I also know that that practice is very good with marketing. And I want to learn how to get more of a self-referral practice to my clinic. So I'm not relying on primary cares or spine surgeons to send me procedures. So while I'm down there and I'm learning STEM, I'm also on the side pulling their, their marketing people or their practice manager aside. And over lunch or dinner, I'm grilling them how they do their marketing, how they did that. And then, you know, in between, you know, if I'm doing a, a two-day visit, you know, I'm going back to my hotel room and I'm just writing down as much information as I can. Or if I have a lunch and they're doing something else, I'm writing down information. And then on my plane flight home, I would always take all my notes. I'd kind of condense it into a game plan. And then when I would show back up into my office, I would institute on how to implement their practice efficiencies or their marketing or whatever procedure they're doing into my practice and make it work. And I did that for five consecutive years. And I would say I learned more from doing that than I did from, you know, anything I did in, in residency. Because when you're at an academic institution, sometimes efficiency and isn't a good thing, right? You only have to see a certain amount of patients. You got a, a so much amount of time. And so you don't really have to be as efficient as when you're in the private practice world. And so seeing people who have been doing it for years, you know, my theory is, is why recreate the will when I can just steal it from another part of the country and, and bring it to my hometown Reno? Yep, definitely. Well, uh, I want to challenge you here, Dennis. So hypothetically, let's say you reach out to someone, you want to do that sponsored visit. They're a thought leader in the field. Well, they view it as, oh, this person is an up and comer trying to steal my business. This person is trying to you know, get insight into my trade secrets. Did that happen? And if so, like, how do you kind of position yourself to say, look, I'm just trying to learn from you. We're just trying to treat patients better. You know, it never really happened. I think if they understand that you're out of their market and you're coming from several states away, that they're more open to it. I can see how local competition would be more threatened by that. You know, they don't want to open your doors if they're just 10, 15 minutes away and have you see what they're doing. So if you're across state lines, I've never seen anybody turn it down. And actually, I, I have a lot of people now come and visit my practice and I'm more than willing. And, you know, when they come in the office, we walk around, I give them handouts. Like, you know, we've created like a quarterly magazine that our, our clinic makes that our marketing girl takes and, and it looks like a magazine and she'll drop it in primary cares offices out in the waiting room. So it looks like it's a magazine with people mm. magazine. When patients pick that up, they look at that and then they, when they're having an appointment, they're like, oh my God, I've got back pain. And looks like this clinic over across town is doing this procedure. Can you send me over there and see if I'm a candidate? I mean, it's, it's kind of 
pretty cool how you do that. And that's the other thing that we've done in our clinic is we have eliminated all outside influences. So think about this. Next time you're in the office as you work, sit down and look around you. And what you'll see is everybody is marketing to your patient, right? Every drug rep that stops by drops off a handout. Everybody tries to, hey, can, do you mind if I put this poster in your room? Oh, here's a free reflux hammer, which has got their drug sponsored on the side. And so what I've tried to do after visiting one of the other clinics was I try to eliminate all that. I'm going to get rid of outside influences, what other people are trying to tell my patients, and I'm going to try to deliver a consistent message that I want my patient to see. So when you sit in my exam room, it's my propaganda, my magazine that I've created. It's my handouts on you know lower back pain, radiofrequency ablation, spinal cord stimulation, Botox for migraines. These are all little handouts that they can look at and read at. And I can't tell you how many patients will walk in sometimes to see, you know, say a low back patient at the end of the appointment. They're like, oh, I've got migraines too. I saw this handout. Do you think I could get some Botox for my migraines? And it's like, well, good question. Well, why don't we give you a journal, document your migraines for the next month. And next month when I see you, we'll follow up how your lower back's doing and delve into this new topic and see if you're a candidate for Botox. And so I've seen that, you know, consistently people are more than willing to help out. And I've kind of tried to you know, return the favor now. Any younger physician who wants to come visit my practice or learn about these things, I'm always willing to bring them in, give them anything I've got, email them any templates I have and help out. And I've just been thankful that I really haven't run across anybody that has not been that way. Like everybody's been very open and and willing to help. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for paying it forward, obviously on this podcast as well. And that's something that's very nice to see. We really appreciate it. Could you talk a little bit about kind of you dabbled upon kind of keeping the marketing materials your own, but is there anything, any other examples for marketing or anything that referring physicians would like for you to do or not do that you might share with the listeners? Yeah. So I'll give you two things about marketing that I think have been instrumental as I think number one, especially when you're starting your own practice, the power of the handshake or just grassroots marketing. And that's you yourself. You are the product. You are the person that they want to meet and talk to. So, you know, if I've got a marketing girl and she's going to go do a lunch at another practice, if she and she only shows up and talks to people, it's not going to drive as many referrals over as if I personally show up, talk to the providers, shake their hand and and give them more detail about the practice. I've just seen it time and time again, especially now that, you know, I've gotten busier to the point where you know, the marketing girl's like, oh, I see you're busy. Do you mind if I just go take them breakfast or lunch? She'll go over there and I'll rarely see a, a bump in the numbers, but it's still good. You know, you want to take care of your referral sources and thank them for the patients they do send over. But I just see that if I go do a lunch with her, sit down and take the time, block my schedule, that, you know, you'll see a large increase of referrals, you know, over that next few months from that, that practice because you got a chance to shake their hand. The other thing that I think is key with starting your practice, especially when you do those visits, is you don't want to be the guy that shows up. And when they say, oh, that's great. Well, what insurances do you take? And you're like, oh, well, you know, I can tell you what I don't take, you know, because no physician's ever going to keep track of that, right? Oh, well, I can't send to Dr. Patterson or I can only send these patients. I can't send these. You don't want them to ever think that. So I honestly, when I took all insurances and when I talked to primary carers and say, what insurances do you take? I'd say, I take it. You know, I, I take even Medicaid, send the Medicaid patients over, I'll, I'll take care of it. And then 
the other thing that I didn't want to limit is be like, oh, well, you only do spine pain, right? And oh no, if it hurts, send it over. I'm a pain clinic. I, head to toe, any body part, I'll see and treat it and do the best I can. And if I can't do anything for it, then I'll, I'll triage it over. And so I think that's the best thing you can do as a provider is one, show up to promote yourself. Two, don't limit the referrals you'll take. And then three, try to use some analogy that those physicians can understand. And so the third thing I would tell you is I've always liked the cardiology analogy. If that makes sense that, you know, when a patient shows up to the primary care's office and they have chest pain, you know, the first thing isn't an EKG and a referral to the cardiothoracic surgeon. You know, the first thing is a referral to the cardiologist. The cardiologist works it up. And then if he can't manage it and they need an intervention, he passes it on to the cardiothoracic surgeon. And so I try to de describe to them that anybody with pain, that's who I am. I'm that cardiologist, send it to me, and I can evaluate and treat it, work it up, what needs to be done. And from there, I can pass it on to the appropriate specialty if needed. Nice. You know, I like how you're, you're viewing it from their perspective, because obviously they are, you know, have a million things to do. So you're using their language, using their analogies, and it makes much more sense for them, I imagine. Yeah. And the other thing you're saying, the other marketing thing, so that's referring, you know, marketing to referral sources. I, I think the second thing is, is marketing your own patients. So we already kind of touched on that earlier with propaganda in the office and different things. But as a pain provider, you're going to see all the time, you know, oh, doc, you don't suffer from pain. You've never had this problem. How do you know what it's like? Or you've never had this procedure. So what I ended up doing is, you know, I always got frustrated with that or hear comments like, doc, I went online and, you know, I read that these stimulators don't work or that procedure doesn't help out. And so what I've ended up doing is some of the procedures where I hear those commonly, every three months, I have a patient seminar and I put that seminar offsite. So it's out of my office. It's in a neutral place where patients don't feel like, you know, I'm forcing anything on them. I do it in the evening. So there's no time constraints where during the day, sometimes when you're talking to patients, you know, you're trying to talk to them and you got one hand on the doorknob, which you're trying not to do. And so in this scenario, it's at six o'clock at night. And so say like, you know, coming up in a month, I've got one on spinal cord stimulation, as long as the coronavirus doesn't, you know, kill it with everything that's going on now. But we show up, we have tables, we have the stimulation information on the tables. I get up and I do a very simple patient oriented slides, five slides at most, just kind of talking about what stimulation is, how long it's been around, how it can help them. And then kind of what are the steps to having it done? And then I basically sit down and I invite three patients who have been through the process, give up and give like their story. And then I open it up where it's patient to patient dialogue. And so now patients can be like, do you mind if I see your incision? Oh, did that trial hurt? Oh, how long were you out of work after the implant was done? Oh, can I see your controller? This is how you turn it up. This is how you turn it down. And I'll tell you what, that's the next day. I show up in my office and I've had patients who maybe five years, I've talked to them about a stimulator or alternative treatments will, you know, not commit. And they go to that seminar and the next day I've got a phone call saying, when can I, when can I schedule that procedure? It's pretty profound to have a patient to patient marketing tool that can allow them to interact with one another and just know that they're not the only ones out there, right? That there's other people who suffer from their condition. You know, they don't have to see a faceless, nameless person who wrote some bad review online that may not be pertinent to their condition, but now they've met somebody who they can relate with. They can see they've been through the process. They can see it works and they can make it a better informed decision 
instead of trusting a guy who's just recommending it, who's never had pain and never been through it. Yeah, no, I really like that. The patient-to-patient education is a pretty unique take. Tell us they're getting educated. I would say as a pain physician, we need to continue to be educated. Switching gears, talk about your education, kind of going through the training for the mild procedure. Yeah, so, you know, what you're going to find is that our field is exploding, right? And this is kind of kind of where cardiology and interventional cardiology was, you know, probably 10, 20 years ago. And so there are newer, lesser, minimally invasive procedures that are coming out. And the question is, is they kind of fall in the gray area, right? Is it, do pain physicians do them? Is it uh, neurosurgery? Is it orthospine? You know, is it orthopedics? Who should be or should not be doing these, these different procedures? And so I remember for the state of Nevada, I was the first person offered training in the mild procedure. And I always get a good laugh out of this because I thought it was doomed from the start. And what I mean by that is I got on my flight and I barely made the flight. So it was a Friday afternoon. I had OR cases that day. And I remember running from the OR to my car, making it to the airport. and almost felt like my scrubs were still sweaty, right? From having the lead on. <laughs> yeah. On my flight, I sit by the window and I remember halfway through the flight down to Orange County, I kind of just rubbed my eye and I was in my, kind of had a tickle or an itch in my eye and I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then, you know, land and sure enough, my luggage doesn't make it. Checked it, you know, and I'll tell you what, I've, always check my luggage since. This is the last time I probably check my luggage doing anything where I travel. You know, I was probably more concerned at that time about personal hygiene, cologne, you know, different things. So those are more than 3.2 ounces. Yeah. Screw that. I can go without the cologne now. Just, it's, it's just it's so I can check my luggage. <laughs> so I land there, there's no luggage and it's, it's John Wayne airport down there, which has a noise ordinance. So they have to shut the airport down at like 10 o'clock. So there is no flight after mine coming in later. The only flight is the next day. But, oh, yeah, we've got one. We'll track down your luggage. We'll get it delivered to you. And so I get to my hotel near the airport, start doing some work, you know, for my clinic. That's the one thing as a, if you own your own clinic, it just seems like you could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That it, There's just always something to be done. So remember, I get to my hotel room and I'm like, oh, no wife, no kids to bother me. I can kind of get some stuff done, open my laptop and work crash, wake up the next morning. And I, I kind of can open one eye, but couldn't open that eye that had this itch. And I kind of looked down at my pillow and I just see a green substance like everywhere. And I can't open my eye. I go in and I've got, my eye is sealed shut. And remember, I've got no, I've still got my dirty scrubs from the day before on. I've got my, you know, luggage doesn't come. And I got to now be over to the mild or Virtosis headquarters to be trained literally get ice, hot packs, try to do whatever I can with my eye. I show up with an eye that's three quarters shut, scrubs from the day before. I smell, at least I got a shower. And I'm thinking like, this is going to be the worst experience. This procedure's doomed. I'm never going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) To Virtos's credit, they were great. They ended up, you know, felt horrible. They ended up giving me a, a fresh pair of scrubs. I think they try to give me some toiletries and things like that, use their corporate bathroom to kind of, you know, kind of get cleaned up and then went through the training that afternoon and, you know, did great, got on my plane flight home. And when I landed sitting next to the luggage carousel was my suitcase. I doubt it ever left Reno. It was there the entire time I was in Orange County, but yeah, it was amazing. Did that procedure on a lot of patients before, you know, CMS kind of had the, 
a period of time where they took it back, made it go through the national studies before it just got re-released a couple of years ago. But I would tell you, my patients thought that was one of the best procedures I could offer them. And even now, it's a great procedure to offer patients because we're not just treating pain, but we're treating the underlying anatomical abnormalities that are causing their pain. And, and by eliminating that, you can give them significant pain relief that's going to last. You know, I think it's important as a physician, especially in our field with everything that's going to happen, is you got to keep your ear to the railroad tracks and see what's coming down the tracks and try to be aggressive with getting trained moving forward. Because I think if, you know, who knows where this is going to go and what type of procedures we're going to do. And if you, you don't take that, you know, aggressive approach to get trained, you may get passed by. Yeah. Yeah. Words of wisdom. And I think in honesty, technically you could say like, I could do the mild procedure, like with one eye closed. So maybe that should be part of your material. (laughs) And I I literally did it. I got trained with one eye closed. (laughs) (laughs) No, going to a different procedure. Tell us a little bit. You talked about the mild. Tell us about your initial training in SI joint stabilization and kind of your impression of it. Yeah. So I think a lot of people saw, you know, that interventional pain, it has this gray area. And so it was a lateral SI joint fusion company had reached out to me, you know, heard I had good hands. It was basically through their distributor that I worked with another product said, Hey, you should really train this guy. And so I ended up going down to Las Vegas and I did a lab with four other pain physicians and it was the lateral approach and compression screw. And let's just say it was one of those things that, you know, I went down there, did it. I think we all kind of did it. We all kind of looked at each other as like, should I really or really not be doing this? I really felt like a carpenter when I was done and like more like an orthopedic surgeon. It just didn't feel right. And I think we all got out in the parking lot and looked at one another and said, you know, I, I think I looked at, you know, the guys and I said, are you going to go home and apply for privileges and do this? And he was like, no. And then it was the next physician, you know, pain physician. I was like, are you going to go home and ask for, no. And it was it, all of us that decided that after that day that there was no way that was out of our wheelhouse, we shouldn't be doing it. So now, you know, a couple months later, somebody comes down the line talking about the posterior approach. You should get trained. I was very resistant, you know, because I've already felt like I wasted a weekend away from my wife and kids getting trained on this lateral approach and, you know, realized it was kind of out of our scope of practice, probably shouldn't be doing it. You know, read about the neurovascular complications. Plus when working the equipment, seeing the Steinman pin take off, you know, I remember, you know, during that cadaver lab working on the right side, you know, lateral view, go to an AP and my Steinman pins all the way through the sacrum on the other side. And I'm like, uh, like, you know, just felt like the, they had no control. So I was very hesitant to learn the posterior approach. First company to approach me was Corner Lock. Ended up going out, feeling, you know, honestly, on my way out there, like, you know, why am I wasting my time? I'm probably going to learn something I'm not going to do. And then just remembering how much simpler and easier it was in knowing that the neurovascular complications weren't the same as doing that lateral approach was just pleasantly surprised. And ended up, you know, coming back and now I've been an advocate for it. And I think, you know, once again, had to, fight, you know, my hospital on getting privileges for it and be the first in the state of Nevada, just like I was the mild procedure five years earlier. And so I would say, you know, at first, if something doesn't seem right, you know, go with your heart, don't pursue it. But that doesn't mean give up on that idea or thinking that you can't do that. As we're saying earlier, there's five ways to skin a cat. Just look at another, maybe another company, another set of equipment or a different way to 
approach it. You may find something that seems more natural and fits within, you know, your realm or your practice and, and move forward with it. Mm, nice. So it sounds like you were really resistant at first and flew out there and kind of changed your mind since then. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Dennis, this is great. Last question for you. For the listeners out there, any last words of wisdom, pearls, tips that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, I think for the younger physicians who are graduating, as I was saying earlier, I would tell you, you know, come out, be realistic about it. You know, as we were saying earlier, your interview process is a very short process. It's not like you get to date or hang out with the practice you're going to join or the physicians you're going to join for several weeks to months and really get to know them. You're going to actually get to know them as part of your job. And statistics show that 80% of first physicians in their first job aren't in that position one to two years later. So I tell you, you know, come out, be realistic. Don't go crazy. Don't go, you know, buy a house initially. Don't go buy a fancy car, you know, live within your means and make sure that you have a backup plan if things don't work out. Wise words. Thank you so much. Dennis Patterson, this has been very great. You're the embodiment of kind of staying on top of the knowledge, being you know, freely sharing, gracious with your time. So PSPS listeners really appreciate it. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.